How's that? Oh, that's better. That's better. Um, well, I'm not sure what to say with that introduction, but um, we, uh, we're glad that we're here. We're glad that we're here. It's good to worship God together. It's good to revel in all the truths that Scripture has for us. Um, and as John has said, we're looking this morning at Jesus as the mighty God. Now, there they are, the four. I'm not saying that, that the mighty God is more important than the other three. The size of the type is just to say that's where it fits into the context, num- number two. And I'm going to read, uh, I know last Sunday when Pastor Dennis preached, the weather was sort of closing in and some of you probably looked out the window and thought, uh-uh, not today, don't blame you. So I'm going to read... Isaiah chapter 9, the the verses that our series is taken from, although it might have been read last week. And it's in a time when the people of God are going through difficult times. There's all sorts of political threats, and they're looking for a saviour, they're looking for a messiah, they're looking for someone who will deliver them and see off all these potential enemies. And Isaiah chapter 9 begins by saying, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. That rings a bell, that place, doesn't it? He will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So that's the context of the scripture that we're, that we're looking at. Um, wonderful counselor, as Pastor Dennis explained to us last week, the word wonderful, beyond understanding, beyond great, beyond fantastic, unknowable, and yet we can know him. Mighty God today. Now, a little bit of Greek there, just to sort of keep up with the Joneses and, you know, make sure we know what we're talking about. Mighty God, El Gibor in Hebrew. And El is the adjective. Uh, Sorry, El is the name for God. It's a shortened form of Elohim. And Gibor is the adjective, mighty. And when Elohim, God, is shortened to El, it usually means mighty one. So in a way, the title is Mighty, Mighty One, the Mighty, Mighty One. A real emphasis on God's strength and might and ability to get stuff done. His greatness, his goodness, the size of it, the the, the enormity of God's holiness. We're looking at the Mighty, Mighty One. 
So this morning, I want us to look at this and ask ourselves a couple of questions. Well, if if we're looking at Jesus being the mighty one, why is there this whole question of might? And is it Jesus? Because when Isaiah prophesied this, he didn't know about Jesus. And yet, looking back, we have the benefit of being able to say, ah, yes, Galilee, yes. And the things that are said about him, he will reign on David's throne, that's a messianic prophecy. The shepherd king, that's Jesus. And we can look back and we say, hey, this is fantastic. And prophecy often has different levels of interpretation. They were looking for an immediate political messiah who would free them. We know now that the other, the other level of interpretation is that Jesus is our Messiah who delivers us not from physical oppressors but from sin as we shall see. So why the emphasis on mighty and is this Jesus? Just as a political or military leader will need might and strength and power and wisdom if he's going to lead his soldiers into an effective battle to get the job done, so our Messiah needs might, power, strength, the ability to get the job done. Clout. He needs clout. He needs to be able to influence, more than influence. Sometimes we read that you have this expression that what sort of juice has this guy got? You know, how how far does his power and strength go? Just what can it achieve and what's got, got to achieve? Why is Jesus called the mighty God? Okay, it's a long story. And we're going to go right back to the beginning. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden, to creation. It was good. God created man and woman in his image. By the way, he didn't create man in his image and woman in man's image. He created male and female both in his image. Right? That's important. Both male and female are in the image of God. We all are, whatever our gender. So it was plan A... God created, it was good, and God wanted to have fellowship and walked in the garden. We're not bothered about whether this is literal or or whether it's uh, symbolic, whether it's literally seven days. It doesn't matter as far as our considerations of this morning are concerned. What we have here is a creation that is good and man and woman who are are good and are placed in that garden um, with authority. It started off well. But then... God said, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to look after this. I'm giving you authority over this creation. I want you to look after it. I want you to till it. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. But there's some boundaries. Okay? Healthy boundaries, holy boundaries. You can do this, you can do that, you can do the other, but don't do that. In In Genesis, it's referred to as being, don't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What that means, again, whether it's literal or or symbolic, doesn't matter. The fact is that for our purposes today, God created us good, but with good boundaries. And God said this and not that. But then the serpent came along. Was he literally a serpent? Doesn't matter. Evil, an evil influence more than that, came along and said, yeah, God said this, don't worry about that. Do that instead. And man said, okay, we'll go with Satan. That, in effect, is a sort of the fall in three lines. God said this, Satan said that, man said, we'll go with Satan. Unfortunately. So the healthy boundaries for man, for his own good, were broken. Man chose to ignore those boundaries, and thus evil 
entered creation. Sometimes you say, well, hang on, if everything is good, how can there be evil? Now, that's a deep theological question to which I don't have the full answer, but I suppose if you have something which is good, there must be an opposite, something which is not good. The potential for that. God did not create evil. He created us with free will, and he created some... His angels apparently had free will, and some of them rebelled and were jealous and said, I will be as God. And that was Satan and his lot who were thrown out of heaven as soon as evil appeared. There is evil. There is goodness. Okay. So that doesn't sound good. Is it all really that bad? Sin, death, a curse, alienation creation marred by evil. Is it that bad? Yes, it is, and worse. Sin entered the world, falling short. God saying this, man saying, nah. Nah, we'll do it our way. Not God's way, it doesn't matter. Falling short of God's standards. Rebellion, disregard of God. Remember what's the context? This is the context of Christmas, mighty God, and we're building up to why our Messiah needs to be mighty God. Death, the wages of sin is death. It's inevitable. That's the result of sin. That's pretty bad. A curse, we've already sung about this curse. Or was that, I think the curse was mentioned in the first song that we sang this morning, quaint language but real. There is a curse on creation because when man fell, God said, cursed be you because you're going to do this and you're going to do that. He said to the woman, cursed you are. And he said to the serpent, you're cursed. Creation is cursed. There is a curse on this creation, a holy curse that God initiated as a result of man's sin. That results in alienation. Pretty soon, if you continue through Genesis, after the creation, after the fall, what's one of the next things that happens? Anybody remember? Cain kills Abel. Adam and Eve have some kids. Okay, don't read much about them, but next thing we see, two brothers, siblings, uh, getting at it, and murder. It's all going wrong. Alienation between God and man, alienation between man and man. The whole of creation is, is cursed and is marred by evil. So, yes, it is that bad. What a lovely, inspiring Christmas message. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. <laughs> but it's to get the background of why, God is, uh, why this prophecy calls Jesus mighty God. We've got to see what's the job that's got to be done and what's the background to that job. Plan A was God's intention. Man took it otherwise. And this sets the stage for the mighty one, for Jesus. You see, God isn't done with his creation. There's more. Plan B. Sometimes we might balk and say, hang on, you're telling me that God has a plan A and a plan B. Well, plan A was his original. Fellowship, goodness, everything good. God walking in the garden with man and woman. But that went wrong. So God comes up with a plan of salvation, plan B. So that's why we call it plan B. The problem is what is this? How can we describe this problem? What is the problem that needs fixing? How can this curse be reversed? Well, God gave man authority to rule over this earth. And when man said, yeah, we'll go Satan's way, in effect, man was saying to Satan, 
I've been giving you authority because I'm in a position of authority, holy authority from God, to, to sort out what happens on this earth and I'm giving it to you. That sounds a bit stark, but if you think about it, that is in effect what happens. Man has been given authority and he chooses to, to go Satan's way. He had that ability to make that choice. God gave him the ability to choose. He chose evil. And that gave Satan authority. That gave evil authority in this creation. So, in a sense, Satan legally has a foothold on creation. It was something that man was in man's remit to choose. Crazy choice, didn't realize the implications, but it happened. So, God gave man authority, and man, by misusing this authority, gave Satan a foothold, because man thought he knew better than God. Because God had said, I don't want you to do this, and man said, oh, we'll do it anyway. Not so good. So what's the size of the job that needs to be done? Well, somehow this sin has got to be overcome by righteousness. Somehow this rebellion has to be overcome by obedience. Somehow this evil choice has to be overcome by some holy choices. Somehow this curse has to be overcome by blessing. Somehow death has to be overcome by life. This is the size of the task. But how on earth... Could man do this? Because every man and woman who was born as a baby and grew up was under this curse of sin, had this fallen nature which we all inherit. There is something inherently fallen about us that's marring the good image of God that's in us. How can somebody reverse this poor decision? Because everybody is bound by it. Everybody is under this curse. Everybody is affected by it. So we need a solution. We need someone who can come along who is not tainted by sin. Now we can begin to see where we're going. We need someone who is not part of this fallen created order, but is still a human being. Because it was human beings who made the wrong decision, so it can legally only be human beings who can reverse that decision. So we need a person. We also need somebody and I love this expression, who, can, who, who has the right to enter the throne room of God when he chooses. Someone who can walk up to the throne of God because of his own holiness and purity. Now we see who we're talking about, don't we? Someone who can mediate, who can bridge that gap between man and God. Someone who is able to bear this curse of sin and yet not be destroyed by it. So we need someone who is both man and God, who's got a foot in both camps. And that's why we celebrate at Christmas, because we know who we believe that is. So this plan B, if you like, is the plan of salvation. So what's going to happen? The transaction. Is Jesus just a good example? I was talking to somebody some time back, and they said, well, Jesus' life and death, it was just a really good example for us to follow. He was a good teacher. Well, he was, and he is an example, but there's a whole lot, I believe, a whole lot more to it than that. The transaction. Well, the wages of sin are death. When you do a job, you expect wages. Normally, that's a good thing. You go to work, you do your eight-hour shift, whatever it is, you come home, at the end of the two weeks or whatever, you get your paycheck. You deserve it, that's what you earn, that's the agreement, and you welcome that. Now, look at it the other way around. 
When sin comes along, that's like doing a job, doing badly. And the wages of that is not welcome, it's death. You cannot separate sin from death because sin inevitably leads to death. And we're not just talking about physical death, we're talking about spiritual death. So Jesus, when he died, picked up those wages. The wages of sin is death. He became sin for us. Our mighty God, our wonderful counsellor, became sin. We talk about Jesus bearing our sin, which he did. But scripture actually says he became sin. We cannot begin to imagine what that means. Somehow, all our fallenness was laid upon him. And he voluntarily took it. He paid those wages. Okay. So that's the transaction. Jesus suffered death. So, still a nice, positive, encouraging, inspiring Christmas message. Is that it? The sinless Son of God has died. He's experienced separation. Mighty God has suffered death for you and for me. I want to read from Matthew, chapter 27. Thinking about what's going on around the crucifixion. This is chapter 27. Don't need to look at it up. Just a couple of verses. Verse 51. At the time of Jesus' death, um, people thought he was calling Elijah when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by the way, he cried that out because God had forsaken him. He wasn't mistaken. When David wrote those words in the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hadn't really forsaken David. When Jesus uttered those words, it was his God Father had turned his back on him. How on earth can we imagine what that meant to Father, to Jesus? Wow. These verses. Leave him alone, they said. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. They thought he was crying out to Elijah. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Is that it? At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Hey, something's happening. How did that happen? The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city, and appeared to many people. We rarely read those verses but some really great stuff happened at the time of the crucifixion and the time of the resurrection we ask ourselves is that it the death of Jesus and the answer is no that is not it and if you're here for the first time if you're not sure what becoming a Christian is all about it's about hope and it's about life and it's about life being more than what we experience here and now what's going on it's strange but it's life-giving because people are coming to life. You see, Jesus himself had no sin. He was pure. He was holy. He wasn't under creation's curse. He had done nothing to deserve death. He chose to bear that curse, but he himself was innocent. So, yes, our sin was laid upon Jesus, and he paid the price, death. But hang on a minute. Satan you have now committed an illegal act in God's court of justice. 
you have killed a righteous man. You can't do that. You cannot kill a righteous man because it's only sin that produces death. And Jesus the man has taken that sin, but you've got the God the Son there. God the Son is pure, he is holy, he is righteous. He has never committed any sin. You cannot kill him. Satan had committed an illegal act. He had overstepped the mark. And so, we have this fantastic verse from Acts chapter 2 when Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And the dots are because I've sort of shortened bits to condense it. You put him to death, but God raised him because it was impossible. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Absolutely impossible. He is holy. He is pure. He is God the Son. He has never put a foot wrong. He has never done anything wrong. There is no sin on him. and uh, Sin is the only thing that leads to death. And by death we mean separation from God, spiritual death. Jesus doesn't deserve that. So he can, it is impossible for him to come under death's influence permanently. And so... There's no room for doubt. If it's impossible, then what happens? Well, we'll come on to that in a minute, but I just want to do a little quick sidebar. There's a book here called Destined for the Throne by a guy called Billheimer. I used to have it, but I think when I had a clear out before we emigrated over here, it probably got lost. It's an old book. It goes back to about the 70s. You got it. Right. And it, 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 it talks about this God's justice and God's court and illegal and legal uh, in a spiritual sense. It's really good, and then it talks a lot about spiritual warfare based on the authority we have. So it's a good book to have if you can get hold of it. It's still around. You can get it on Amazon. Um, Justin, Destined for the Throne by Bill Hymer. I think it was written in the 1970s. So um, it's, it's been around a bit. So coming back to our story, which is looking a little bit more hopeful, if... Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Mighty One, is dead. It is impossible for death to hold him, so the inevitable result must be resurrection. If he cannot remain dead, he's got to be alive. And so God raised him from the dead. And of course, his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. It's the inevitable result. The curse has been reversed. Now, the power of sin in my life is broken. The power of sin in my life is broken because the power of sin is death. You and I and death have got to be cut off. We've been cut off from death, separation from God. We will die physically, but that is just an entrance into the fullness of God's kingdom. We cannot die spiritually because we have been raised with Christ and we will be raised with Christ. Now, What's the difference between the power of sin and sins that I do? What, what, what's, how do we explain that? Well, if you've got a Christmas tree, the lights aren't on. God oh dear. <laughs> um, if you've got a Christmas tree, a real one, I think these are pretend ones, but if you've got a real one, I think these do all sorts of fancy things and light up and grow and get shorter and stuff, but anyway, they're rather good. If you, if you go to the, the garden centre somewhere and you want a real tree and not one with a root ball, the one that's been sawn off, you load it onto your car and it looks fine and you take it home and the next day it's there and uh, it's, it's pretty good. It looks okay. 
In fact, it's dead. What's its future? Well, after a few days, some of the needles start falling off, and then before long, you've got a whole load of needles in your nice, dry, centrally heated home, or loads of needles on the floor, and then you have to come along with the vacuum, and you say, don't touch that tree! Don't touch that tree! You've got needles all over you. Um, the power of that life has gone. It still looks okay for a time. But in fact, the power is broken. It's dead. And that's like sin and death to us. we, We still may look sinful and we do sins, but the power is gone. We are cut off from death. We are cut off from the power of sin. There's a better illustration that I sometimes use of when I was when we were in England, at the end of our yard, garden, there was a big tall tree, and I might have told you this one before, but it makes the same point, I think, more clearly. And it had lots of ivy twisting around it, choking, the whole thing was choked by ivy. So you and I are the tree, sin is the ivy. And it's choking this tree, it's stopping it from growing, reaching its potential. And one day I got fed up with this, so I came along and I pulled all the leaves around the bottom and I came along with my little saw or cutters and every shoot of ivy that was going, it's a very tall tree, I cut it. I cut off the, each of the stems of the ivy that were strangling this tree. Now what happens when I come back the next day? Looks much the same. The day after, looks much the same. The week after looks much the same. The month after, some of those leaves are looking a bit dead. Oh, they're starting to fall off. Now that's sin. The power of it is cut off. But it takes time for that to take root and to develop in our lives and to show forth the fruit of that. The reality is it's dead. Its power, its hold over you is gone. And that's the good news of Christmas. The power of sin is gone in your life. The power that leads... uh, The the power of sin leads to death and that will not happen for you and for me. We may look still, we may still commit sins because it takes time for things to work through but the actual life that sin would give us, which is death, is gone. So that's a better explanation of it, I think. Um, It's doomed. Sin is doomed, if you like, put it that way. So Jesus rises from the dead and that guarantees our resurrection as well. That's absolutely fantastic. It's an inevitable result. We were sing, singing that song, Is He Worthy? And, this is, and those words from Revelation. And it so ties in with what we're talking about because the resurrection of Jesus proves who he is, proves his power is enough to cancel the power of sin. And I want us to think about those verses that we've sung that we've had read to us because it's a tremendous celebration of who Jesus is, that this is our mighty God. And what we're going to do, I'm going to read out the bits in black and everybody's going to read out the bits in red and we are going to worship Jesus in a slightly different way by some some congregational speaking forth of truth. These very verses that we already had drawn to our attention. from Revelation before we move on. So this is a pause just to sort of say, yeah, this is fantastic. He is worthy. He's broken that curse. He's taken that sin. He's become sin for us. But he is not dead. He is alive. And he is the one who is worthy to receive honor and glory. So 
I'll read out the black bits, and when we get to the red bits, please join in. Now, if you think that this is sort of a yeah, marginal, okay, take it or leave it thing, then just do it quietly. If you think this is one of the greatest truths ever, then speak it out appropriately. You choose. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. You know, if you're an elder, you spend most of the time on your face in Revelation. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God men from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow. That is our mighty God. He is the one who is worthy to receive honor and power. He is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy to open those seals. He is the only one who by his own merits can enter the throne room of God. We don't enter the throne room of God on our merits. We enter the Uh, on the merits of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. Now, it's Christmas. So what do we make of all this? What do we make of all this? Well, I've got five essential Christmas doctrines for you. So this is a little bit of a theology lesson, but it's Christmas, and it's vital for these things. I believe that we hold to them. The first thing is the fallenness of, of man. Sometimes people say, oh, man's inherently okay. And on a very deep level, yeah, we're okay, we're created in the image of God, but that sin has come along and spoiled it, and it affects all of us. Okay? We are all fallen, just as, if you like, Adam and Eve fell from grace. They fell from that position of fellowship with God because they went wrong, so we are born into that situation of having been fallen. We can't help it. It's part of being a fallen human being. It's part of being a human being uh, born in this world. The fallenness of man. And if man is not sinful, why on earth is the world in the state it's in? There is evil all around us. Why do we need a Messiah? Now the second one, the wrath of God. This is a difficult one. Because when we talk about wrath, we think of somebody just throwing the toys out of their pram, throwing a wobbly. That is not the wrath of God. Oh, you don't, you don't do wobblies? Oh, it means sort of losing your temper, um, throwing a hissy fit. That would be better. Because that's 
for us, when we think of wrath, that's normally what we think of. Um, there's a guy called Gerard Van Groningen who writes Bible study tools, and he has talked about the wrath of God. And I just want to read out a little bit. It's a little bit, you have to think about it a little bit. There are two Greek New Testament words for wrath, orge and akthos. You don't need to remember those, but we're just looking at the background of this. In the New Testament, there are more than 20 references to the anger, the wrath, or the vengeance, which is orge, of God, and a few references to indignation and displeasure, which is akthos. Wait for it. These terms are to be considered anthropopathic expressions. What does that mean? It means ascribing to someone who is not just a person human feelings and emotions. God is more than being human. He is God. But we talk about God having emotions. And we're trying to apply to God things that relate to us as human beings. So we will never quite get it completely right. Um, But these terms about God's vengeance are things that we apply to people. And when it applies to God, it's different. Human terms, however, cannot give the full meaning of the infinite and sovereign God's emotional experiences. As his love is infinitely incomprehensible, so are his displeasure, his hate, his anger, his wrath, and his vengeance. There's a measure of I can't wrap my head around this. It doesn't, I can't get it because of who God is. There is good reason indeed for the writer of Hebrews to warn sinful people that it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The wrath of God. How can we describe it? Well, it's God's... It's not God throwing a hissy fit. It is God's permanent, inevitable, settled response to sin. It's a complete abhorrence because... In one sense, you say, he knows that this sin has spoiled his creation. He doesn't like that. And it's this reaction against, skin, against sin. God and sin cannot mix at all. God's wrath is not like human wrath. God doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't throw this hissy fit or tantrum. He doesn't blow his top or fly off the handle. He doesn't throw the toys out of the pram. His wrath is holy. It is settled. It is the inevitable response of a holy God to sin. And I think one of the keys to trying to understand better his wrath is to focus on the holiness of God. And then we say, well, if God is like that, he just cannot see sin. He cannot, it's not vindictive. It's not hateful of a person. It's just hating this stuff that has spoiled and marred his creation. So the wrath of God is an essential doctrine. In other words, the need for sin to be dealt with. The virgin birth. Some people say, ah, well, virgin birth, you know, the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary, and yeah, well, that's just a story, a fable, it's a myth. It's Joseph, wasn't it? Or even worse, somebody else. Uh Uh-uh. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, you have Mary and you have a a human father, Joseph, say. This is not what happened, but this is what, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, this is where you have to go. You have to have a human father. If Jesus had a human mother, which he did, and a human father, he's under the curse of sin. He's born just like you and me with this fallen nature. Therefore, he cannot represent us to God. He cannot reverse that curse because he's under it himself. So the virgin birth is an essential 
doctrine. However much we might think this is weird, it's essential. It, the whole of the gospel falls apart if any of these doctrines is disregarded. Then the deity of Christ. If Jesus is not God, he cannot stand in the throne room and plead our cause. Only Jesus can walk into the throne room of God on his own merits. And he has done that on our behalf. Some people say, well, yes, he was just a teacher, he was just a good example, he was a special man, but no, he's not God. Oh, yes, he is. Otherwise, the whole of salvation falls apart if he's just a man. And then the resurrection. People say, ah, well, the crucifixion and the resurrection is just to say that things will get better. It's not literal. There'll be a new life. There's hope for the future. Things are going to improve. Cheer up. Resurrection. It's not just some airy-fairy concept. It's a physical reality, a spiritual reality. And his resurrection guarantees your resurrection and mine. And if, it, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, as Paul says in Corinthians, basically, forget it, go home, waste of time. We are of all men most to be pitied. But, then Paul goes on, look at it in 1, in 1 Corinthians, around about chapter 15. He did, in fact, rise from the dead. In fact, it was impossible for him not to rise from the dead, as we have seen. So, these doctrines are essential this is heavy stuff for Christmas, but, I, you know, it's good to get behind it. And that's why I said, you know, we sometimes think Christmas, oh yes, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, there's the baby, there's the wise men, there's the three kings bringing their gifts, isn't this nice? And yes, it is nice, and yes, there is the truth in gentle Jesus, meek and mild, meek and mild but also mighty God, which we're looking at this morning, facing down sin, facing down death, facing down hell, securing our salvation and the promise of the renewal of all things. Know the gentle Jesus. He draws alongside us. We heard about that last week with him being a wonderful counsellor. We'll be looking at him being a prince of peace soon. There is that sense of God coming alongside us in the person of Jesus to help us, to encourage us, in the sort of gentle Jesus, meek and mild mold, which is valid and good and essential. But the other side of the coin is, here is Jesus, our mighty God, beating Satan, beating death, beating hell, securing our salvation. Now, he is the mighty, mighty one. Is this just superficial, cheap triumphalism? You know, these poor Christians just saying, rah, 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 isn't, we love Jesus, we love Jesus. It's not superficial triumphalism. It's what will deliver you and me from hell to heaven. That needs some might. That needed some power. That needed not just a good example. That needed a sacrifice. Jesus was and is that sacrifice. So, last week, Dennis came to this point and said, so what? I'm calling it the Monday morning factor. I'm calling it a Monday morning factor because my brother, who's a bit of a preacher, he's very insistent that every sermon should have a Monday morning factor. In other words, so what? We hear these, these eloquent or not so eloquent words, very eloquent with Pastor Dennis. Every word is measured. Um, not so much with me because I go too fast and lose my words. I know I get told about that. Um, not from him. From nobody here. My wife's not very well this morning. <laughs> um, 
The Monday morning factor is important. In other words, all this airy-fairy stuff, does it have any use in our lives? Is there any point in it, or does it just keep the pastor in a job? Well, I've got three Monday morning factors there that I thought might be helpful. Hope. Some of us have been, some of us have probably been somewhere where we've lost hope. Something has died and hope has died with it. You remember, if you've been here sometime, sometime back, we had some of the ladies from the Walter Hoving home. Most of them got to a point where there was no hope. They were in a position of hopelessness. And then somehow, God met them. And And hope has been revived. We may not be in such extreme circumstances, but we go through things, or if we haven't, we probably will at some time, where something that we hoped for and wanted and was really living for falls apart. It might be a relationship, it might be health, it might be a loved one, it might be employment, it might be our own emotions. Something falls apart and we get to the point we think, is there any hope? I've lost hope. Well, we have a hope for the future. That hope of resurrection, and as if, I know I've preached this one before, that's not like, a, well, I hope I'll rise from the dead. I don't know whether I will, but I hope so. It's not that sort of hope. It's a certain hope because of what's needed to, to express that hope has already happened. The resurrection of Jesus has already happened. So our resurrection is guaranteed. So that's the hope that we have. And that hope for the future is very real. I can tell you from experience that that hope for the future helps you in daily life. And a lot of us know that uh, already. But this hope is also helping us now. We all have a story. Some stories are not so good. Our experience on earth is not all there is. There is more. Your story and my story are not the biggest story. The biggest story is the one of Jesus Christ, what we've been looking at this morning. And when we see our story in the light of his story, that doesn't remove the seriousness of our story, but it means that, hey, there's someone who understands, there's someone around who's going to sort this out one day. Our story is not the biggest story. There is a bigger story that you and I are involved with, and that is the kingdom of God. And that can bring us hope. The biggest story isn't what goes wrong in your life and mine, The biggest story is what went right on Easter Sunday. That's something perhaps a Monday morning factor. He is with you, Emmanuel, God with us. Number two, I reckon if we went round and asked, asked you to write on a piece of paper, do you ever feel a misfit, inferior, or whatever, there'll be quite a lot of ticks. Because many of us sometimes feel, I'm an outsider, I don't belong, I'm a misfit, It's all right for them. God loves them, but not me. I'm too bad. I've gone too far. God God went wrong when he made me because I'm inferior to all these super spiritual Christians. And sometimes we can get into that, 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 that vicious circle of putting ourselves down and basically saying, I'm no good. Look at them. They're better than me. God says that nobody is excluded from his grace. If you say you're too bad, then what makes you so special? Why are you worse than somebody like the Apostle Paul who's killing Christians? Why are you a special case? You are and you aren't. 
You are a special case because his love for you and me is special to each one of us. You aren't special because you're no worse than somebody else. You're no better than somebody else and God's grace can reach to you, not just the other super spiritual people. Don't put yourself down. I am not excluded from God's grace. And we talked about walking into the presence of a holy God and we've had this from Hebrews, boldly approaching the throne of God. Metaphorically, it's not a geographical thing. But in our hearts, our lives, our devotions, we can approach God and he will welcome us. We do not need to fear that he's going to turn us away. He welcomed Jesus who came on our behalf. He welcomed us. And that's why scripture encourages us in Hebrews, and this comes back to the series that we're doing in Hebrews, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace to receive grace and help in time of need. That means you, that means me. So our mighty God has obtained access to heaven, to eternity, for us. We are accepted. You are accepted. I'm accepted. You are welcomed. That doesn't mean that we don't get rid of, try and get rid of sin, but it means that in Christ we belong to him. In Christ we will rise again. In Christ our sin is dealt with. The power of sin is broken. Remember that Christmas tree. The life of it is cut off. The life of sin in you is cut off. Yes, there are still symptoms, but persevere. The fruit of the Spirit will be coming along, bit by bit, and the power of Jesus is such that he will save us from sin and hell. He's already done that. He is our mighty God. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you that we can meditate over these truths Thank you that they're not myths, they're not fable. It is truth. It is life-giving truth. Jesus, we want to thank you that you, mighty God, faced down Satan. You have taken our sin. You have paid our debt. You've borne the death that we deserve. And yet, Lord Jesus, it was impossible for sin to hold you. It was impossible for death to hold you because you yourself are the sinless Son of God. You are divine. You are God the Son. So thank you that your resurrection is a fact and thank you that because you have been through death and out the other side and live forevermore, so will we. We don't deserve it. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves as you see us. Help us, Lord, to live our lives as, as your children to see the, the vestiges of sin falling off and the true life of the Spirit blossoming forth. We want to thank you that we can celebrate these truths. We pray that you'll be with us for the rest of the day. May we walk in fellowship with you and one another. Watch over us, watch over our loved ones. And may we just walk in this life that you've given us. May we meditate on these truths and live for you each day. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Home group leaders downstairs at about quarter to twelve.